Looking at an early stage company or legacy church business is often like looking at a drawing of Picasso in the best case, right? Where other people will look at it and say, wait, this doesn't look like a bird. This really doesn't look like a face. Like, what is this guy doing? The name La Familia very much comes from or is based on trust as well. And that is just the kind of bond um, that you get once you join La Familia. Um, and that is what really, I think, makes us very special. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have a really fun episode. I'm interviewing two of my favorite people um, all the way over in Germany, uh, the team and the founding team of La Familia, Judith and Jeanette. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you. Great so to be for, here. For the audience, um, we are co-investors, and uh, we've, we've done several deals together, and I've constantly gotten great, great uh, feedback from founders uh, that work with you, uh, both from uh, Judith and from you, Jeanette, as well. And and we wanted to, in this episode, kind of dive into a little bit of the background uh, of each of you, but also uh, La Familia as a fund and kind of what you guys look for. And then we'll get into sectors and on all those other areas of fund. So let's start off with a little bit of, of personal backgrounds. Maybe we'll start with, with you, Judith. Um, let's just a little bit about what you were doing before, uh, what you did right after college. What was your first job? what you did before La Familia, and then what you do now. Of course. So actually, those two things coincide because my job after college was also the job before La Familia. I'm still fairly young, at least for speaking in VC partner terms. Uh, so right after college, I joined Facebook because while I was still at uni, I was doing a lot of research with Facebook data from Instagram and Facebook. I always like to say I was Cambridge Analytica, but like with a good conscience and like with actual morals. Um, and so joined Facebook managed the biggest global account, Amazon and their European business, and started the Facebook VC initiative, working with startups and VCs across Europe on scaling their portfolio companies using data-driven strategies to basically deploy their money in terms of advertising and user growth more wisely. Um, and then Jeanette kind of found me, and we were introduced by a friend, and she told me all about her vision for the future, for Europe, for the bridges that need to be built. Um, and it was very much a gut decision of you know joining her, quitting my job at Facebook, that was three years ago. And so now a partner, we've raised a second fund together, but I'll maybe hand over to Jeanette so that she can introduce herself. So Jeanette, I know that you're going to be, you're going to probably be tempted to be like super humble at the moment and not share all the great stuff, including your PhD. So I'm going to force you to tell us a little bit about your background, but also as Judith implied, would love to hear kind of what your pitch was to her, like join me because we're going to do this together. So yeah, a little bit of background, be complete about it. And then what, what defined La Familia that brought Judith on? For sure. Very happy to. So on my background, I actually come from a traditional German family business background um, and was lucky enough to have a really extraordinary grandfather um, who was very much a driving force or guiding, guiding force in my life. Um, he was actually an artist before becoming an entrepreneur. So his whole entrepreneurial career in a very, very technical domain was actually shaped by disruptive thinking, right? So you would always kind of slot in completely out of the box, new ideas, which then had, you know, helped us capture new markets. And for me, that was always kind of normal as a child, like you grow up with someone thinking, oh my God, you know, like this is just how people are. I guess he's a bit crazy, but he's he's definitely engaging and fun. And we always had artists around the table next to customers, next to, you know, scientists, engineers. Um, 
So it was always like a very kind of fun and mixed group. And I always thought this kind of this kind of environment was normal. Then growing up, I actually realized it wasn't so normal. Um, and I was always kind of intrigued by the idea of trying to understand, you know, what there was in terms of bridges between established industry, startup ecosystem, but also what there was between, um, let's say, entrepreneurship and art, because entrepreneurship and art really are very, very similar in many ways. Um so I actually looked at the Renaissance and really tried to find out what made that period so innovative. Why um, did people think so way ahead of their time? And my assumption was that they were so innovative as entrepreneurs because they really had this closeness to the field of art and they were really kind of inspired and in very, very close sort of feedback loops with artists on problems that they were facing, um, which just really then allowed them to become, um, you know, to become, you know, I think the most dominant or the most prominent figure in, 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 in Renaissance um, Europe at the time and really propelled themselves way ahead of their, of their of their time and out of the Middle Ages. So that was um, a question that I was pondering during my PhD and then really looked at the Renaissance and the Medici in more detail. And yeah, and it's just kind of where it was able to really trigger a lot of key points as to where um, entrepreneurs um, and, and artists really can be, you know, a can, can, can enable one another, but also in how far they're very similar. And let me give you one um, concrete example, um, Carlos, which I think is, is fascinating. Um, it's actually that of disenio. So disenio is a term that was coined by Vasari in the, in the in the 15th century, and what he meant by that was really this whole notion of genius, right? This whole notion notion of art is actually not a craft; it's actually a stroke of genius, and it actually means the transformation of an idea into reality. So manifesting an idea into something that is tangible to others, um, which to me actually is also very similar to the way you would describe an early stage company, right? So now maybe closing the loop um, from uh, my kind of more academic background to what then intrigued me in my working career, which then progressed actually into in a um, you know equity fund that was focused purely on entrepreneurial-led companies that were listed um, listed on the stock exchanges. So I really got to meet a lot of interesting entrepreneurs at the later stages of their success. Um, which was a really kind of formative experience for me. Um, and then coming back from Paris to Germany, kind of quickly understood that, you know, the whole ecosystem here was changing. Um, our family business was really in dire needs of, of innovation, was really um, a kind of very far behind us. I think most of established industries these days, right? It was just showing that they had very little visibility on enabling technologies, little visibility on cloud infrastructure, anything that would really kind of take them towards the um, 21st century. And that is when I actively started, you know, investing into B2B early stage companies, which was a very kind of, you know, trend that was in its infancy four or five years ago, when the whole Berlin ecosystem was still very much dominated by the, you know, the rocket internet consumer uh, driven businesses and you just had the first kind of wave of companies at the time of founders that really turned from from consumer to b2b because a lot of the i guess trends that you know initially were visible in 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 consumer then kind of just trickled down to 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 enterprise exactly and that is when la familia was born mm. and so what was your pitch to judith my pitch to judith was that um we need to make sure Europe does not fall behind. And we have everything at our hands to do so. And her incredible talent is wasted at Facebook. Um, she can make a stellar career then. Actually, had I known how good she was, I would have been way more intimidated in that call. But I think because I wasn't so intimidated in the call, I would just basically just overwhelm her with charm and overwhelm her with the idea of us um, being able to contribute to what we th see as a huge opportunity for Europe not to fall behind against the US and China. And she bit... Luckily. And we actually connected over the fact that we both 
did the same study course for undergrads. So we both started out in Munich studying communication science and economics. And so that was like a conversation starter because we somehow have very similar roots in terms of where we started, but then ended up in a field that was completely different. Wow. No, that's great. Well, I'm also intimidated by every time I talk to Judith. So there you go. We have that in common, Jeanette. There you go. <laughs> same back exactly. to you, Carla. Same back to you. Um, I, I think when, when Jeanette, we were, when we were talking a little bit um, uh, before about what La Familia stood about, um, I think you also shared with me that um, it's important to have a place to belong. And I think, you know, one of the values that you, you brought was this idea that you didn't like how people can sometimes feel like they don't, they, they've never been able to belong and that you wanted to create a community that, that would be one where people felt inclusive. And so maybe you can talk about that element of La Familia. Like what, what is it that you guys are trying to build for the people you back? Yeah. So I think, you know, belonging for us very much means that we don't like to think of relationships or even networks as something that's transactional, which I think, you know, 2020, 2019, like, you know, the, the kind of 20th century in general, the 21st century as well is all about kind of the communities and how information spreads across networks. And, you know, with social media and, you know, VCs and, you know, platform VCs that has become ever more prevalent. And I think these days everyone likes to say that, you know, they're like a family or, you know, they've got very, very strong networks. But for us, I think it's something that we really mean. So I'm you know currently sitting in Jeanette's home in, in, in Heiligenberg and we're spending kind of, you know, the end of the year together. Um, you know, like we we have a lot of offsites with our team where we really do feel like a family, you know, that has its ups and its downs, you know, that sometimes make certain conversations, I think, tough. Um, but, you know, it also helps us get through, you know, really, really tough times in the market. Um, I think the way that we portray that to founders is that we have, you know, a set of events that pre-COVID were offline. Now we've tried to take them online and we have a relationship with them that really goes beyond just the transactional nature of us being invested into their fund. You know, that can mean, uh, you know, kind of knowing, um, you know, the, the names of, you know, their babies that can mean, you know, sending them presents that can mean, you know, Jeanette consulting them on like all the kind of ups and downs of, you know, having a family and being a founder at the same time. But that also means, I think for us, you know, really kind of putting the people first and trying to put our ego aside. I do think also, you know, having sat um, in, you know, many board meetings now, I think, you know, you definitely are one of the like best examples of, I think, what board members should be about. But I do think there's still a lot of ego, you know, that investors bring to the table where things are more about them than they are about the company. And I think that's just something that we try to put aside, and, you know, just like within families where it's really about caring deeply about, you know, the success of somebody else, putting yourself kind of, you know, onto the backseat and almost being able to, you know, or willing to put your life on the line for someone. I think that's a little bit extreme, but I think that's the kind of notion and mentality that we try to bring to the fund, both internally, but also when communicating and working with our founders. That's great. And, and, you know, that's exactly what I've experienced as well. And, and that's why, you know, we, we highly rate you guys. And one of the Maybe other... Adding to that, Carlos, from, from one angle, which is more from a established industry angle, right? I think that the name La Familia very much comes from or is based on trust as well. And I think we've been able to kind of build trust with established industry leaders um, that, you know, has formed over, you know, years and decades sometimes. And that kind of trust layer, we are kind of, you know, basically transferring over to, to our founders once we start backing them. Mm-hmm. And that is just kind of the kind of, let's say, trust extension or bond um, that you get once you join La Familia. Um, and that is what really, I think, makes us very special. Yeah, well, it, if, if I take that and I call it the soul of La Familia, there's also the structure of La Familia. And I wanted to, to jump into that. So I know that one of the things that you guys do is you help founders get into a deep dive uh, and assess a product market fit within 
their customer base, you know, whether it's like um, looking at industries that you're familiar with uh, from, from your family business, Jeanette, or, or other industries that are, you know, um, globally minded, you know, one of the things that you guys have definitely specialized is in, in looking at the way established companies connect with startups and, and sort of educating both parties on how to talk to each other. Maybe you can talk a little bit about where that comes from and then how, how does that work? Like what, what is it, what is the offering there for a founder? Mm-hmm. I think one thing to keep in mind, Carlos, is that entrepreneurs, once you put them face to face, they always speak the same language, even though they've kind of, you know, they come from from different generations, they come from different, um, you know, they've built their companies in different times, so to speak. But as soon as you strip everything off, you know, all the all the org, the second and third tier management level, and you really have put them, you know, eye to eye, they always have the best interest of their company at heart, right? I think that is something that is fundamental to what we do at La Familia, because that's where sparks get triggered that's where partnerships get triggered that's how they really manage to um to form a a bond and where the, where the bond of la familia i guess extends um and looking at the 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 let's say differences that need to be bridged it's very much in communication so it comes very much down to you know you have to um, understand that the one party has everything to lose, right? They're always more fearful because they have already built a large fortune. They've already built a large company that carry responsibility for many, many employees. So they are always a bit more, um, let's say, careful in, in, in the, the steps that they choose versus a startup that has everything to gain and everything to win, right? And I think just calibrating that dynamic and the way that you position them one to another and, you know, basically being almost a translator of language, if you like, mm-hmm. um, is, is what are the three? What are the three top three translation elements that you normally see as critical to sort of explain to a startup? Like, I'm going to give you some examples of what I mean by like translation elements. It's like expectations around who the decision makers are, or expectations on sales cycle speed, or expectations on approval process. You know, like maybe just give me an example of the kinds of things that founders usually don't know or don't consider when talking to these more established companies that will affect them. And will affect you as an investor in terms of like when you can see demonstrable traction. I think one thing that we definitely see is profitability and mm. the importance of profitability. Like established industry entrepreneurs, because they've had to be profitable, because they had to, you know, most of the time bootstrap their businesses. There was no like, you know, huge VC landscape back in the whatever, like 50s, 60s to build their companies. Like profitability is important for them and sustainability is important for them. And so I think, you know, founders coming with the kind of rapid innovation and, you know, we're going to like boom, 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 you know, kind of work our way into the market and not be profitable forever. Like that can be a language that can be difficult for, I think, you know, entrepreneurs from the established industries and rightly so. And, you know, yes, we know the Amazon examples and the Tesla examples and how very often the big transformative elements come out of, you know, an area of, you know, not being profitable to be able to go after the big shots. And I think it's then our jobs to educate kind of, you know, the more established side of the market on, you know, being able to follow these trends. But I think, also, the entrepreneurs, you know, who very much work on VC burn and, you know, they think like the money will just always come flowing. I think it's also important for them to be grounded and understand that for many companies out there and for many of the employees, you know, have jobs in the German and European ecosystem and industry, like profitability and also sustainability and sometimes taking a step back and not always breaking everything, right? With regard to like my previous employer, Facebook, like, you know, be fast and break things. I think that is not necessarily a notion that would apply to all the industries and where both sides from the table can kind of learn from one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe adding to that, I think there's another point that we see a lot, which comes down to um, really 
getting product market fit, right? Getting a sensitivity for what the user actually needs and being able to listen to the cues and being able to pick those up from the actual people, the actual end users, right? It may not be completely data-driven in the beginning. It may be just be something where you have to do qualitative interviews, where you need to actually go to the damn shop floor, pick the person and just watch what he's doing and how what, what his day actually looks like. As stupid as that sounds, but that is definitely something that we have that, that we have seen. And then secondly, I think when you were asking about concrete go-to-market dynamics, one thing is that founders always expect things to move much faster than they actually do. And sometimes it just comes down to that this person, for example, doesn't know the, the precise, let's say, or cannot be, is not able to point the solution towards a colleague that he, you know, that would be right to basically take care of this at the next step. So just being able to navigate the org yourself as a founder, trying to figure out or pinpoint the, the three people that would be relevant and just kind of asking that, that, that initial person for an introduction can just speed up things enormously. Mm. So it's little cues like that, that we help them, um, that we help our, our portfolio companies navigate. And I think to that point, because I think that's a super interesting point with regard to the observational element of B2B, we always say, and we were both social scientists by training, at least when it comes to our undergrad, you know, we always say that B2B is all about social science. It's about social context, which is, you know, counterintuitive because you would think that is B2C, but in B2C, it's, you know, more about the vision and the brand and, you know, kind of, you know, riding on this huge wave that is building up in the viral market. Whereas in B2B, it comes down to people. And if you have the ability to really observe, listen, shut up, and, you know, kind of work your way from that, I think that is the, the biggest asset that founders can have in terms of catering their solution to what is needed in the markets that they're tackling. And that's also a perspective that we try to kind of foster and instill in them. So if, if we play with that idea of observations and cues, what sectors have been classically ignored because the perception is that it's too hard for a startup to interface, to observe and to, to note the cues but that will be the source of future growth for the next 10 years, which in your experience are the ones that people just dismiss because, and, and 10 years ago, this was FinTech, right? Mm -hmm. That was the case for FinTech. But what is it today in your experience? So I think when we started with La Familia, people were said, said you're crazy to go into the sectors of B2B that you're, that you're, that you're looking at because sales cycles take forever. And we're like, well, wait for it and watch us. Um, so I think going to your concrete question, insurance is one of them, a sector we're incredibly bullish on, huge industry, um, where I think we haven't even scraped the surface of the top 10% of transformational um potential in that in that industry which is huge um second would be logistics and supply chain another sector we're really really bullish on something that has captured huge tailwinds you know with the whole you know trade war initially but then also with COVID obviously becoming the topic of the hour now but four years ago people said you're crazy um wh why would you do that we have SAP and that that will do and then logistics right I think these are these are three core elements that just seem really really um you know, archaic, archaic um, that, that people don't really wrap their head around yet as to how to actually productize digital value in these in, the, in these industry, which is hard, right? Like, but once you get there, it's actually really, really, really profitable. And it's an incredible and it's 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 an incredible value potential that is just lying there to 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 be grasped by founders. And then industrial, right? At the whole, let's say industrial manufacturing process, which we think will be completely turned on its head over the next five to 10 years. And that's why we're so bullish on on these sectors specifically from a sector vertical perspective. But I think we're also um, equally interested into anything that relates to sustainability and not only 
since you know since since um, Greta and entered the stage, but also before that, and I think it's always been a thesis of ours that we are going to shift to a more ecological economy. So Germany has always been you know social market economy, unlike the US, which has always been free market economy. But I think that is going to be shifted even further towards an ecological economy, which I think will actually trigger great potential for um, let's say digital value capture in this sort of, you know, infrastructure um, rewiring that we're going to see over the next couple of years. Um, and I think what, what what is really key to these sectors is you need to pick up cues that will not be full, fully automated in the beginning, right? And that's also something for investors to wrap their heads around with regards to, you will always see seed stage or even pre-series A companies that will not have 100% ARR-based revenues. You know, there will always be a percentage of service-based revenues initially. And that is okay, right? Because eventually they're going to increase the share of ARR of that. And the overall, let's say, you know, p potential value capture you can generate there is just huge. Mm. I don't know if the, um, it, it's probably worth spending a little bit of time on that last one. So I, I have, I've heard um, and seen how that's, all the sectors that you mentioned are slowly being chiseled away by startups and we're super early. So it, it does marry up with, with what we're seeing. And I would probably add to that list health as well, just because health is one of those sort of very, very centrally controlled ones, especially in Europe, but that is slowly being sort of divvied up. But on that last point about sustainability, I, I wanted to get your thoughts um, as you explore this sector, because it is a sector that is to some extent um, being held back by capitalism in the way that it, capitalism is structured. In the in the podcast, there's one question that I always like to ask, um, and I'm not going to ask it in this particular session today because I'm going to phrase it differently for, for this sustainability point. And the question I usually ask at the end of the podcast is like, what do you think will look, uh, 50 years in the future, what do you think we'll look back on today and think, oh my God, how did we let this happen? And if you look classically, like for example, hundred years ago, it might've been like um, slavery or taking over the Americas or whatever. Like there's a number of things that we look back on and we're like, how the hell did that happen? How did we let that as a humanity happen? And one of the things that I think it's, a, it's an easy answer to this is how did we let climate get out of control, right? How did we let environment get out of control? But the problem is that there isn't like a mechanism by which to tie capitalism to that. And so therefore you have these sort of attempts to self-regulate or to penalize organizations. And you've, you've seen like Kyoto Protocol related stuff, you know. Um, and so I'm just curious as to how do you guys think about investing in companies where at the moment there is no direct linkage between them being successful and not crippling the current way capitalism works in the outcome? You know, an example of this would be like a, a fishing company, like a tuna fishing company is perversely motivated to overfish beyond the point of the fish reproducing because it drives up revenues and, and shareholder value, right? How do you, how are you thinking about investing in social impact and ecology in light of this? So I think one thing to not be underestimated is the regulation side of things. And I think even in the US, we're now starting to see the first kind of effects and they will have ripple effects over time. So I think that is something that we're definitely taking into consideration, both with regard to CO2 tax, but also, you know, wider regulation. I think the underlying issue, though, that you're mentioning, and that to me then ties back to capitalism again, and we actually, you know, we're just speaking to a company who has lots of interesting data on this, is that people, it's kind of like the Trump element of elections, right? So if you poll people and you ask them, would you be willing to pay more money for sustainable packaging for shampoo? Everyone will say yes, 
of course, I'd be willing to pay 20 cents more. But then if you look at the actual shopping behavior, if that bottle of shampoo is made 20 cents more expensive, people go back to buying the old alternative that is, you know, cheaper. And so I think that is kind of the mechanism that, that we've created in this world is like cost and, you know, money is kind of the ruling element of, of the world that we live in. And so I think for us, both looking at technologies that can really, you know, be cost effective and really be able to compete with the alternatives that, you know, might be cheaper and be either able to offer superior quality or offer the same quality at cheaper prices. I think that is part of the element that will just, you know, need to be there for solutions to really take off in the market because just banking on, you know, a small part of, you know, wealthy um, wealthy people in the West being able to, you know, afford, you know, the kind of super, you know, sustainable whatever, I think that's just not something that will work for the globe in its entirety. And I think already COVID is also showing us that, you know, you mentioned earlier today, like the scissor that we're seeing kind of, you know, spreading in society, like this polarization where we see the kind of more vulnerable sectors of society who are really struggling, you know, in terms of economic crisis, in terms of the pandemic, like, are they really the people that we can then ask to pay more for sustainability, you know, that we all messed up, you know, as, as the, as the kind of population of this, of this world in its entirety. And so I think that's a super, super hard question. It's a question that we ask entrepreneurs is, you know, not just going into the social impact route of things and like, you know, but we're greener and we're better. Like what is the actual like monetary calculation that sits behind what you're doing? And that's a very, very tough challenge to solve. But I think that's exactly why it makes it the right challenge for entrepreneurs and for companies who will then be able to overcome that. Mm. And I think there's also the element of thought leaders, right? I think a lot more and more people look towards and, you know, look towards idealizing tech entrepreneurs for what they're doing. And I think if they go ahead and basically kind of make sure they're, whole value equation supply chain become carbon neutral, then it's definitely something that will influence, I think, the broader public to a great degree. Um, and secondly, I think I wouldn't underestimate, um, as, as Judith said, regulation, also when it comes down to, you know, BlackRock's recent announcements of, you know, basically them wanting to back, you know, carbon neutral or they say carbon conscious companies, them being the largest asset manager in the world is going to have a severe influence over that. And I think maybe just going to your question, Carlos, of, what will we say about 50 years ago? How would you put it that, that that happened? I think I hope by that moment in time, we will say we've also put our children back into nature and taken them out of social media and into something that actually forms us as human beings. I think that's just one thing that I think we need to preserve nature and we need to make sure our kids get back into nature. Um, thank God I live in the countryside, so I, I basically can just dump them in the forest every day. That's how I grew up. And I think it's just the most healthy way to 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 grow up and and and, you know, develop as a, as a, as a, as a, as a human being. Yeah, no, I agree with that actually. And it's funny because one of the, the, there are a few answers that I get kind of over and over and, and um, the impact of social media on the youth is, is another one of the ones that comes up quite often. And, and it's tricky, right? Because like communication tools have been so useful for, for discovery, for aligning uh, and refining ideas, but at the same time, they've been so dangerous and, and it seems like we're going through a phase in humanity where we're trying to figure out how to how to provide access to information, but limit it in a way that isn't violating freedom of speech. You know, and like I think that's what's going on right now with um, uh, regulation on on big tech and Facebook and Google is how do you keep how do you keep information flowing, but make a decision on behalf of the the recipients that this is real information. You know especially with everything having to do with fake news and, you know, anti-vaxxing and stuff like that. It's, it's a tricky thing. And, and it's, and it's like investing in that space as investors, it's, it's an interesting uh, opportunity for us as to like, how do you, how do you tread that fine line? 
and how do you make smart decisions there? Um, I, I, I recommend a book called The Future of Capitalism by Paul Collier. It's actually a very eye-opening read on, on he, he actually does a very good job of, of putting it all together. But um, I know that I know that in another area that you you guys you know you guys look at quite a bit um, is is collaboration, and and we were talking a little bit about that. I know that we we obviously did Graphy together, and and maybe this is an opportunity to talk about why you guys invested in in Andre and the Graphy team, and kind of what what it says about the larger uh, collaboration uh, in organizations going forward. Yeah, so I think I mean Andre and, and Graphy is an interesting one because for us it was one of the kind of heaviest conviction investments out of Fund One. Um, we basically had one call the next day. I flew over to, you know, back in the day, Edinburgh, where they were based to meet them and then decided to invest like the next morning. So it was a very, very fast process on our end. And I think the the, the thing that really convinced me both, you know, kind of Andre's very compelling, um, you know, kind of nature, you know, him as a founder, I think, you know, he's incredibly special in the way that he communicates and he's able to rally people around him. I think, especially during times of COVID and the fact that it's a remote company, I think, you know, every company needs an Andre. <laughs> Of, 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 you know, some sort. Um, I think that's really kind of a talent that you need to be able to engage an audience, you know, despite all the remoteness. But I think the second thing that we're seeing is um, kind of the growth of technology versus the growth of humanity or kind of human capabilities. And so we always like to think about technological challenge challenges versus adaptive challenges. And so if we look at the, you know, what's happening with data is, you know, like with the rise of the internet and like video and mobile and so on and so forth, we see this kind of, you know, tremendous growth of data. But if you look at kind of humans' abilities to adapt, both in terms of, you know, kind of smartening up, but also in terms of the devices that we're used to, like all the ruts that we're stuck in and so on and so forth, that just, you know, will never align. So humans tend to adapt a lot more slowly than, you know, technology and data does. And so um, we really want to see companies that can bridge the gap, you know, in between how humans, you know, can move forward in this world, um, but also kind of, you know, making sure they are productive in terms of dealing with these amounts of data around them. And so I previously worked at Facebook um, and I had the, the insane um, kind of privilege of, you know, being on more of a kind of engineering track within Facebook. I was working in the sales team, but I was working with a lot of engineers and I was building a lot of dashboards. You know, I was kind of, you know, pulling lots of uh, lots of SQL queries from like data pipelines and so on and so forth. So that, that was my job. That was my kind of, that was my kind of world. Um, and all the other salespeople like didn't know how to do that. So I became somewhat of a bottleneck of people kind of knocking on my door daily saying, can you build this dashboard for me? Can you help me, you know, get, make sense of this point, you know, data point? Can you help me, you know, make this, do this analysis for the client? And so I, I saw this bottleneck in terms of like all the data being available at Facebook, but very, very few people being able to actually tap into that. And so I think that speaks to this divide and, you know, Graphy and the kind of collaborative data platform that they're building was something that then just, you know, kind of, um, yeah, was a was a was a point that rung really true to me and kind of you know hit hit home for me in terms of what I was experiencing um, in my previous um, career step. Yeah, I, I I agree with that um, assessment of when we first met. Graphy was in the same kind of vein of of utility, and I think where I'm really excited about where data and data silos is increasing. We've made a couple other investments. One one is in Harbor, um, and you just see so much data out there right now that in the next 10 years is going to be about how to correlate all these data sets, how to visualize them locally and internally with data sets you have to, to the example you gave, Judith, but then how to interface with external ones, how to license external data sets, how to aggregate them, how to correlate them. Um, to your point earlier, uh, Jeanette, about insurance, you know, insurance is largely around risk analysis on data, right? I think the insurance industry is going to be entirely revolutionized around micro levels of risk assessment, all the way down to like an instance of an activity 
and then being able to have micro policies going forward. So yeah, it's a, it's an I interesting. To add to that, Carlos, I think it's also going to be about more dynamic data, right? I think insurance policy so far has always been on on historic data sets. I think what is going to be the challenge of the new of the new normal is going to be how do we actually factor in real time data into our policies um, and incentivize good behavior. I think these are these are very interesting challenges um, for the insurance industry. Yeah, and and also for the logistics and supply chain industry, right? Like it's it's adding live situational awareness and then also being able to then with that tax routes that are overly congested. I mean, the entire internet protocol is built around quality of service and effectively taxing routes that are overused. And so this aggregation of data is going to enable all this stuff to happen. Um, Going back to uh, a comment you made, Judith, about Andre, you know, one of the things that Obviously, we we could we could wax lyrical about our good friend Andre, and, and hopefully, when he listens to this podcast, he'll be amused. <laughs> but um, but it's I think one of the things that's really important, obviously, as an investor, is assessing a team, right? Assessing what are the attributes that it takes to succeed, and you know, you never you never have the perfect mix of attributes when you start. You know, usually it's one or two friends that come together. And what are the things that you guys look for? I know, Jeanette, you mentioned that you look for people with an artistic mindset sometimes because of, of the background that you have. But maybe just walk us through a little bit about what, what your what your attribute list is, what your ideal elements are in a founding team. Yeah, I think what we really want to see is founders with very bold and transformative visions, right? And that kind of have something in their character and in their nature that just wills the future into being, right? So this is kind of crazy quantum physics stuff, if you like, but I definitely believe there's an element of a reality distortion field in any good entrepreneur, right? Because they kind of see something in the future that is not visible to others and that they kind of then slowly manifest into something that becomes graspable to others, right? This comes down to good leadership more broadly, right? I think great leaders see the future 10, 15 years ahead, but they have to break it down to bite-sized pieces that are digestible for customers, that are digestible for investors. So I think the storytelling element in there is incredibly is incredibly important. Um, I think the second thing is these founders have typically understood something about a market um, that others haven't understood, right? And that's kind of what we're probing because we will never, you know, be as hopefully we will never know more about a market than a founder does, right? So hopefully he's going to be able to tell us something that, you know, he has understood about the market that others haven't. And then a lot of that won't be what a reference call with BCG or a reference call with customers active in that market will currently tell you. When we did our reference calls on, on Freight Hub at the time, we were told by current logistics providers that they will never ship a single container. And here we are, right? And they're shipping, I don't know how many, but tens of thousands of containers um, every year. Um, so I think that is that is the second thing. And I think then the third thing we were always kind of trying to probe in, in, in founders is trying to understand how... Um, scalable do they think about building and forming a team and are they really do they understand what it takes to not scale a company to 150 people but really beyond that right where you actually build a organization below you that becomes somewhat political right all of a sudden you cannot micromanage every product stream so you ultimately have people in place directly below you that have that have the smarts and wits to do what they're supposed to do, but that also have a political agenda of their own to some sort, right? So you need to kind of abstract yourself away to a certain degree, um, enable these people whilst also retaining control. So I think this is just something that is is baked into the DNA of, of, of certain people that have that, you know, leadership mindset and mentality. And I think spotting that early and probing that in early conversations um, is something we're very much on the outlook for when we're when we're diligence thing at companies at seed stage. Anything to add to that? Anything to add, Judith? 
No, I think that really um, summarizes it perfectly. I think we definitely do have a bias for doers versus strategists, right? So um, I mean, the the example that we always like to like to quote is the kind of you know founder who comes with a deck of fifty slides and like all of these ideas of what they might be able to build, but there's like literally not even an MVP and they haven't even started building that. Versus a founder that has a somewhat crappy deck, but you know they've got like you know a cool MVP or they have a lot of you know, kind of small steps that they've taken that show you that they're able to like get shit done. And so I think that's certainly a bias that we have in the fund, like less strategy slides and more you know just show us how you can move this market forward. Yeah. And I think maybe like one analogy we always like to draw is that looking at an early stage company or like a C-Church business is often like looking at a drawing of Picasso in the best case, right? Where other people will look at it and say, wait, there's no color. Like this doesn't look like a bird. This really doesn't look like a face. Like what is this guy doing? This is definitely not a painting. I don't think he's up to the task. Forget about it. Right. But other people could look at it and say, well, you know, there's actually a new language of describing the, the world, right? There's actually, there's something in there that shows me that this guy has a unique perspective on that given problem, right? And maybe that perspective will succeed. And I think you want to go for these companies because I think there's, it's always a question of like risk and reward. I think that the chances of these people, these, you know, companies working out may be a little bit lower with regards to overall like likelihood, but they have, when they succeed, they really go big and they really have an impact. And that's what we're very excited by. Nice. All right. Well, we're going to go back to talking about you guys a little bit, just for, for the listeners to sort of, now that they've understood La Familia, what you guys are interested in, what you guys look for, I want to go full circle and back to you guys. So uh, I'll, I'll start with you, Jeanette, because you, you were just um, sharing some thoughts there. Um, biggest mistake you've made in your career but that taught you the most? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake um, was kind of projecting too much into a person um, or founder for that matter um, because of what my creative spin is taking me um, into from like a company vision perspective, right? Instead of actually seeing or assessing what this guy is actually up to and what he actually is looking to build from a vision perspective, right? So I think the 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 risk I personally always run into is that I kind of you know see something that they're presenting me and then I already start extrapolating as to what that could be like five to ten years from now. And I kind of we, we're in that conversation and they always say, oh yeah, right. But then I always kind of actually have to take a step back and remind myself that it shouldn't be me, um, you know, who, who tells them that or kind of spins these ideas, but it should be really coming from them. And then being very mindful of listening to the cues that you pick up there. And I think the biggest mistakes we've made or I've made as investors is, is always been around, um, you know, me interpreting too much um, and, the, and, the, and the guy actually not, or the, the, the person itself actually not going in line with that from, from an intrinsic motivation perspective. I think that would be one. Truth. I think for me, it's an easy one, like not studying computer science or physics for that matter. Thank you, physics I teacher agree, yeah. of the fourth grade who discouraged women from studying physics. I will find you one day and will haunt you down. But that is my biggest, biggest regret for sure. Mm -hmm. But that's, a regret. that's also a career regret necessarily, right? Yeah, but it's, I agree. Yeah, but in some, in some, not a career regret, but I, I think agree. would have definitely helped me. Hey, man. It's it's in the whole STEM movement in Germany. So we're trying to get more women to actually study. It, it, it's never too late to pick it up. There's tons of, I, I know we, we didn't even talk about ed tech, Judith, but, <laughs> but, you know, it's like, definitely it's never too late to learn new things. All right. So the next, next question, this is a extra fun one because you unfortunately have to answer on behalf of each other. Mm. So 
what's the one superpower that your fill in the blank colleague has? So Judith, you need to you need to answer it on behalf of Jeanette. So like, what's the superpower that we'd use to describe Jeanette that she has by your observation? So I think she's able, like no one else I've ever met before, to draw people in and make things happen. So this ability to mesmerize, but at the same time, not staying abstract, but actually moving things forward is something that I think every member of our team sees in Jeanette. And, you know, the reason for, I think, you know, why La Familia is where it is today. Um, and also something that every founder appreciates. So I always like to say, you know, I'm not the toughest negotiator. She is. <laughs> you know, whenever things get really tough, I call Jeanette to, you know, give me some prep talk on like, you know, actually getting through this negotiation and not kind of, you know, bending down or breaking with the pressure. Because I think that's something that she just does fantastically. And I think in Judith, there's so many, right? It's really hard to pick one. Um, if I had to kind of summarize one that kind of stuns me every time is the incredible, um, let's say, strength on both the IQ as well as the EQ side of things. I think most people either have one or the other. Um, with her, both are equally strong. Um, and then the ability to kind of really go from macro to micro in a second and kind of, you know, break down complexity, but also, you know, being able to see complexity as it unfolds um, is, is, is incredibly um, valuable and is, is, is very, very unique to her. There you go. That's great. I, I find it's impossible to get anybody to say that about themselves. So there you go. That's a good way of doing it. I mean, you know, you know, Judas Cloudy well, Carlos, what do you say? Was that a correct? I would say both descriptions are very accurate. <laughs> both descriptions are very accurate. Um, okay, so the last question is, uh, and and you're not allowed to reference anything having to do with La Familia or anything you're doing within La Familia. But what's the what's the biggest achievement slash goal that you have on a personal basis for the next two three years? Can't be work related. Whichever one has it first, go. <laughs> I would say spending more time with my teenage sisters. Um, we have a little bit of a kind of, you know, difficult kind of, you know, family backstory. Parents got divorced, We've got two sisters who are absolutely lovely and, and very, very smart and brilliant. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I really want to take time and spend, you know, a little bit more quality time with them. Um, I have a very, very close relationship with my, um, with my um, other siblings, but, you know, just given the age gap, I think that's something that I want to do more work on. I think it's a very exciting time in their lives. They have very different views. One of them is actually, you know, somewhat of a political influencer these days for kind of socialist ideas, which I, you know, support her in like whatever way she wants to take, even though it's not necessarily the, the way of a venture capitalist. But um, I'm incredibly proud of them. And I really want to make sure I go back to Munich a bit more and, you know, really spend some quality times with my fantastic sisters. Exactly. And even though that sounds cliche, I have four kids, um, the eldest being or turning seven soon and the youngest being five months. So I think for me, it's definitely making sure I get enough time invested personally to, you know, guide them into life, make sure they become curious and mindful and and, and respectful little human beings and build that tree house that my, my little son has been bugging me on. So we already have it all drafted and planned, but I have to actually get around and, and build it with him. So that's one of the one of the key projects for the next couple of years. They're probably drafting it in AutoCAD already. Exactly. <laughs> Cloud software, all like, good to go. Allowed to touch anything digital. That's the thing. Like they're allowed to kind of experiment with anything non-digital. So oh, oh, you're, you're requesting them for the budget review process, approve online, unlock. <laughs> Love it. Teach them early. 
Um, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both. Um, it was definitely unexpected to have both of you in the same place at the same time, but it was it worked out really well. So um, thanks for joining, guys. And um, until next time. Thanks Thank for the you, great Carlos. Questions. Thank you for your time. Bye. Bye-bye.